Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. You'll need a Bible to follow along. The guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back, get their attention, and they'll get you one of those Bibles marked for you at Habakkuk. And keep that Bible as our gift to you. Bring it back with you each week as we look at God's Word together every Lord's Day. Habakkuk chapter 1. Most of us hate to follow someone else, especially when we don't know the details of where they're going or what it is they intend to do. So the boss holds a meeting to unveil a new plan for your department. And as soon as the meeting is over, let the complaining commence. How's that supposed to work? I don't understand what we're supposed to be trying to accomplish. Do these guys have any idea what they're doing? Now, it may well be that they, and you all know that that's the catch-all word when we complain, they, them, it may be that they don't know what they're doing, and so they haven't thought it out as they should, but you can't know that because you may well not have all the information that's available to them. It may be that your department is just one area of a section in a much larger company. There are people in a position to know how those pieces fit together, but you're not privy to that, and you hate it. This desire to know the entire deal from those in charge starts very early. Those of you that have children know the drill. You pack the kids in the car, and the questions start. Where are we going? How long before we get there? What are we going to do there? Who's going to be there? How long will we be there? There are issues on both sides of this, for us and for for them. For us, we naturally have a hard time just doing what we're told. We want to know all the answers. Why, when, where, how, how long? We have a, a very hard time trusting those in charge to see the big picture and to utilize us in the best way possible. We often demand to know the deal, and unless we do, we're going to be discontented, and the only contentment we find is in the company of other malcontents. So we have a very hard time just playing our part, just working our position, staying in our lane, doing our job. If we're asked whether we trust management or trust the coach or trust the conductor, well, we may or may not because as it relates to them, they may or may not have proven themselves trustworthy, making any degree of faith in them all the more difficult. (laughs) This is life in a fallen world. Isn't that great? Now, let's broaden that to include all of the events of our lives, not just work or sports or home or indeed church, but your health and your future and your nation, the economy. Is anybody in charge? Do you have any idea what you're doing? Because it's looking pretty chaotic from my standpoint, from what I can see. And then on we go. But of course, in fact, we can't see. The full picture, can we? And here we are again, back to being dependent on someone in a position to know how all the pieces fit together, but we're not privy to that. And if we're not careful, we hate it. And this boss, too, has told you only what you need to know, not everything you might like to know. 
And today, as we continue our series in the book of Habakkuk, we're going to see that God calls us to trust him for what we do not know. But unlike your boss at work or the coach or the conductor who may or may not be trustworthy, of course, our God is exceedingly worthy of our trust. So let's ask God to help us then as we look at his word in this regard. Father, we thank you that we're here. And we thank you that we have your word. As we're going to be reminded today, it is because you have taken measures to give us your word and preserve your word so that we have it in our language, in our day, in our hands. And so help us, Lord, not to take this great privilege for granted, but help us to focus our attention upon what you say to us in your word and make application of it to our lives today so that we can please you, so that we can honor you because you are indeed worthy. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, every week for our message, we have an outline inserted in your program so that you can follow along. If you don't have that out as yet, please do take that out. And you'll see that, first of all, we say that God has told us what we need to know. God has told us what we need to know. Chapter 2, I ask you to turn to chapter 1 because we're going to look at some passages there in a moment. But in chapter 2 and verse 2, it says this, Then the Lord replied. Now the Lord is replying to Habakkuk, who was replying to God, who had previously replied to Habakkuk. That is, this is the fourth speech in a dialogue between the prophet Habakkuk and God that began back in chapter 1 and verse 2 when Habakkuk laid out his complaint that God was allowing violence and injustice to go unchecked among the nation of God's people. In God's first response, the dialogue takes a stunning turn. Because in chapter 1 and verse 6, God says to Habakkuk that indeed this behavior is going to be checked and judged, but it's going to be done at the hands of the hated Babylonians. Habakkuk is stunned that God would use such a wicked people to accomplish his work because as we saw last week, Habakkuk says in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1 that this is inconsistent with the holy character of God. In verse 13 of chapter 1, Habakkuk says to God, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than themselves? He's saying, God, you simply cannot use the evil Babylonians to judge us. It's out of character for you. And besides that, if you do this, he goes on to say in verses 14 through 17, it'll just embolden those wicked people all the more to worship their military might and gloat over their conquests. In the middle of verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, He, Babylon, and those like them, catch people in their net, gather them up in his dragnet, and so rejoice and is glad. Therefore, verse 16, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. He worships his ability to be able to do this. And Habakkuk ends his plea to the Lord not to do it this way, not to use the Babylonians as tool by saying at the end of chapter 1 in verse 17, in effect, how long are you going to let them get away with their evil? Chapter 2 opens with Habakkuk waiting for the Lord's now answer. In verse 1 he says, I will look to see what you will say to me and what answer I am to give 
to this complaint. I know your people, Lord, are going to have the same problem with this that I do. So what am I going to say to them? And I await your answer. So he waits for the Lord's answer. And that's why chapter 2 and verse 2 starts with, Then the Lord replied. And that reply begins in verse 2 of chapter 2 with this. Notice, write down the revelation. Write down the revelation. Now that teaches us, as I say in your outline, that God has given us His Word. And God has given us His Word in writing. You all know that it's true that a short pencil is much better than a long memory. If you want to be sure that you have a record of something, if you want to be sure to remember it, if it's at all important, then write it down. In the 20 years that I spent working as a computer programmer and consultant, I found myself at different places for different assignments using different processes and equipment. So each time I went to a new place, I had to learn how they did things. In the first week there, invariably, I would make it a point to write down everything, everything I was told. Now, why did I do that? Because it was important to me, and I didn't want to forget it, and I didn't want to have to be coming back saying, now, what was that you said about? Over the years, whenever I meet with someone about serving in a ministry area, if they're not writing down what we're discussing, I know we're going to be covering this again. If it's important, write it down. Now, I have to say that I am impressed when every so often a waitress is able to remember the orders of eight people along with their special requests and the exceptions. But I get really annoyed with those who don't write it down and get it wrong. So God says, write it down. Write it down because it's important and you shouldn't trust it to your faulty memory. And because Habakkuk and other of God's servants did that, we have his revelation in Scripture. Which, by the way, the word Scripture means writing. God has taken pains to give us his word. So we should take pains to know God's word. And our church, friends, provides ways for you to do that. If you know nothing or very little of the Bible, we don't leave it to osmosis over decades for you to learn the Bible's layout and its message and how to study it and how to apply it. We offer you classes for that. This fall in our midweek program, we'll offer one of the two core classes that we encourage everyone to take. I'll be teaching again, as I've done in a cyclical fashion for years, Master Plan for Life which is a systematic theology for regular people, and it covers the major doctrines of the Bible. The following fall, we will do as we always do, alternately offer the second of those two classes, how to get the most out of your Bible. It's a survey of the entire Bible. teaches you how to interpret it and how to apply it. So you can and should plan to take those on Wednesdays starting in the fall. In the meantime, we also offer growth partners when we pair you with another person. A woman with a woman, man with a man, a teenager with an adult. And you read and memorize scripture each week. If you'd like to have a growth partner, fill out the connection card. Check the box toward the bottom of the connection card that says growth partner. And then turn it in at the information desk before you leave today. 
And I tell you all that to just say, friends, there's really no excuse for any of us to be untrained in the use and truth of God's word. God has preserved his word for us, and we should do all that we can to learn it and to live it. God has given us his word, preserving it in writing. And verse 2 says this, make it plain on tablets. The Lord is saying to write it clearly, write it legibly so that it's readable. Now, if I want something to be readable for someone else, I do one of two things. One option is for me to have Kim write it. And in fact, when we give out a graduation or wedding or a birthday card, it's always a collaborative effort. I provide the wording and Kim writes it so that it can actually be read. For other messages, I type it out, but I don't ever give it in my own handwriting. My own handwriting is virtually unreadable. If you look at my handwriting, you would think I write left-handed because it's all slanted backwards. I don't know how I developed that, but I did. And so it's Habakkuk is told, make it plain on tablets. Make it so that it can be read. The tablets may have been composed of stone. They may have been clay, even, even metal. But a common writing material of that day was a clay tablet. And someone would sit down with a stylus and scratch the letters into the clay, and then they would bake the clay to preserve the writing. The importance of God's word requires that we make it available and we make it plain. And that's one of the most important reasons, though not the only reason, that we use the New International Version of the Bible in our services. It's accurate, but it's also plain and therefore easier to understand. Pastor friend of mine some years ago attended a meeting designed to promote the NIV Study Bible, which, by the way, I recommend for you and we have in our resource center. Kenneth Barker, who was the first general editor of that Bible, said that studies showed that people who use the NIV rather than an older and harder to understand translation tend to read and study the Bible more. That stands to reason, at least in my mind, because they're understanding what they're reading. The NIV has updated its wording at least three times since its inception in 1973, most recently in 2011, so that the word continues to be plain to us. There's an organization called Tyndale Bible Translators named for William Tyndale, a 16th century Christian who was persecuted because of his commitment to translate the word of God into the English language. Tyndale expressed his desire with the words, quote, every plowman will have the word of God. It's not only affects then making it available and understandable when we read it, but it also affects how we present the word of God as well. We must speak clearly and plainly in a way that people can understand. We find that in Nehemiah chapter 8, where the Bible says they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. So God has told us what we need to know. He's made it available to us by preserving it and making it plain. And then in turn, it must be proclaimed. It must be preached. And that's why verse 2 says, write down the revelation, make it plain on tablets, here's why, so that a herald may run with it. In ancient times, the only way for a king to communicate throughout his empire was by 
means of a, of a herald. He couldn't go on the three networks and cable channels during prime time and give an address. He had to have his message written down and then he would send a representative. That's the herald whose task it was to take the message and proclaim it in the marketplaces throughout the empire. That's what pastors are supposed to do as a profession. Did you know that? Is to herald. In fact, in the New Testament, that's one title for a pastor is to and his work is to to herald. We're to do that as a, as a way of life. It's not for us to just offer opinions and present our philosophies or talk people into agreeing with our ideas. We're commissioned to proclaim his word. That's what pastors are supposed to do. That's why every week we open the Bible and we say, look and see what it says and follow along. That's why we do that. It's much more exciting. I know that. It's much more exciting to offer a topical message on five keys on how to or whatever it is. But God has given us his word and we're to herald it. And by the way, it's not true of just pastors. It's true of all of us as well. This affects our, for example, our apologetics, defending the faith when we're talking to someone or evangelizing someone. Friends, the truth is we can't convince anyone to be a Christian. The word of God is powerful and effective and moves on the hearts of those that God's spirit moves on in conjunction with his word. So God has told us what we need to know in giving us his word. And that word, I say in your outline, is sufficient. Verse 3 says, the revelation awaits an appointed time. The word that God has made known, that he's revealed, awaits an appointed time to be fulfilled. But it most surely will be fulfilled as God has appointed the very time that that will happen. God is saying, I'll accomplish my purpose with the Babylonians precisely on my timetable. Their end... That's the word used in verse 3. Their end is predetermined. And that word translated end in verse 3 is used elsewhere in the Bible. For example, in the book of Daniel to refer to the end of human history. So God is saying my word will be fulfilled in its entirety. Both in this immediate situation, Habakkuk, but in all that happens in my world now until the very end. Life is filled with things that we don't understand and we cannot sort out, is it not? But whether the confusion is in Habakkuk's day or in our day, God's word reveals the outcome. We know that God will accomplish all of his purposes and that believers are on the winning side. Do you all hear that? God's going to accomplish everything that he sets out, has set out to do, every last thing. And believers win. Because we're on God's side. And because it's God's word, it simply cannot fail. Verse 3 says, it will not prove false. One preacher said, God has made many promises in his word and none of them has ever proved false. To Noah, he said, I want you to spend 120 years preaching and building an ark because 120 years from now, I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. So Noah endures 120 years of mocking and ridicule and criticism, but at the appointed time, the rain began to fall. Sodom and Gomorrah were inhabited by people who lived as if there would never be a time when they would have to answer to God, but at God's determined moment, Sodom and Gomorrah fell. 
God promised a man named Abraham that he would have a son. Years and years passed to the point that Abraham and Sarah were well beyond the time of life when they were capable of bearing children. But at God's appointed time, they had their son Isaac, so named because his name means laughter. They could only laugh at God's plan. God told Abraham that his offspring would enter into Egypt and they would be there for 430 years and then God would deliver them. In Exodus chapter 12, the word of God describes the exit they made from Egypt in these words. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. You move forward in biblical history and picture a hillside just outside Jerusalem and there's a small band of disciples who are watching with their mouths hanging open as the Lord Jesus Christ ascends into the clouds. And two angels appear and they say, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So Jesus is going to return. That's a, that's a promise of God's word. And for 2,000 years, though, he's not come. And for 2,000 years, God's people have looked with great anticipation toward the heavens. And we pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. We pray that because we know that his word has never proven false. Come, Lord Jesus. We know you're going to come. Because you said you're going to come. And you always do what you say. And so that being the case, at the end of verse 3 it says, Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. That is, there will not be a second's delay beyond the appointed time that God has given for every event. It is always certain. And so we can be patient, we can wait for it, we can endure because we believe God is at work to fulfill all that he has promised. Friends, God has told us what we need to know. But I say in your outline as well, we must believe what God has said. He's told us what we need to know, but we must believe what he said. And verses 4 and 5 contrast two different belief systems. One is the belief system of the world and its various manifestations represented here by the Babylonians and their arrogance and their immorality and their indulgence. And the other is that of God's people who take him at his word and they live accordingly. Two kinds of people. The first are the unrighteous, I say in your outline. And they believe in themselves and they live for themselves. Verse 4 says, see the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not upright. In the middle of verse 5, it says that he is arrogant. One has said of these verses and their description of unbelievers that Babylon here represents all those who reject God's word and is characterized by an ungodly pride. Pride lies at the foundation of all the wickedness of humanity. Pride is what causes people to shake their fists in the face of God and says, and say, I'll do as I want. Unbelievers are proud and they're sensual. Verse 5 says, indeed, 
wine betrays him. The culture of Babylon was caught up in the pursuit of pleasure through the use of alcohol. The preoccupation with alcohol is an expression of self-centered sensuality. That is, I want what can appeal to the senses. It's the pursuit of a desire for what makes me feel good. And that's why throughout the Bible we find that the sin of drunkenness is frequently linked with the sin of nakedness. The drunkard wants only what makes him feel good and often sexual sin is related to it as his inhibitions are broken down. We live in a society that is pornographic in nature because our basic problem is pervasive sensuality. That's why we have a culture that's preoccupied with the consumption of alcohol and drugs of all types. We want what feels good. Babylon was a sensual society indulging in alcohol and immorality. It's no wonder that Babylon fell in the time that her king Belshazzar was pursuing his sensuality through a drunken orgy, the Bible tells us later. Now with all of that, friends, let me just say this to you about alcohol and drugs of any kind. That we're to be controlled by nothing other than the Holy Spirit of God. Did you know that? The Bible warns, and I warn you as your pastor, as your shepherd, stay away. Proverbs 23 says, wine bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Many, many other warnings in Scripture about this issue. Let me just say this as an aside as well. Friends, lose the idea that you need to look cool to the world, will you? Just lose that idea. Because as a Christian, you're set apart. That's what holy means. You're different. You march to the beat of a different drummer. And the earlier you get that through your head, the better off you'll be because you'll stop trying to be like the world and be accepted by the world. So stop emulating the world. Those who reject God's word, as represented by the Babylonians, are proud sensual, and greedy. Verse 5 says this. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captives of all the people. The grave is never satisfied. That is, the grave never says that's enough. (laughs) The cemeteries just keep filling up. Just as the grave swallows up all, so Babylon, motivated by greed, swallowed up every nation that lay in her path. She had an insatiable desire for more. And it's a problem with all humanity that the appetites of the soul are never quenched. And it's because of the sinfulness of Babylon, sin that even in the plan of God motivated her to march against Judah, that God said, I'm going to judge you. In fact, we're going to see in verses 6 through 20 in two weeks. Next week, Dr. Combs is going to be preaching. We'll be treated to his ministry next week. In two weeks, we'll look at verses 6 through 20 of chapter 2, and we'll see that God pronounces five woes upon Babylon. So that's the unrighteous. That's the worldling. That's the way they live. They believe in themselves and they live for themselves. But thanks be to God, there's another way to live. 
And I have it for you in your outline. The righteous believe in God and they live for God. Verse four says the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faithfulness. Now, that phrase can be translated. The righteous will live by his faith. That is by what he believes or the righteous will live, as we have here, by his faithfulness. That is by acting on what he believes. Biblically, there's no way to truly separate faith in God from a life of faithfulness for God. And it can be grammatically translated, as I say, either way. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous or the just will live by faith, is quoted three times in your New Testament. And each time that it's quoted, it emphasizes a different aspect of that extremely important sentence. It's quoted in Romans chapter 1 in verse 17 where the emphasis is on the righteous, the just. And so you should read it this way in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. The righteous will live by faith. The emphasis is upon the righteous. One has summarized what these three New Testament uses mean by saying what God says to Habakkuk assumes that there are indeed righteous persons. But of course we know we're not righteous. We're sinners, all of us, and we continue to struggle with sin even after we come to Christ in salvation. The truth is none of us can meet God's standard of righteousness, so how can God view us as righteous? And it's in the book of Romans that the Bible gives the answer. That righteousness is God's gift to us through Jesus Christ. The book of Romans shows that the justified or the righteous person is one who ceases to try to please God through his own efforts. He stops trying to gain God's favor by what he does. He turns instead to Jesus Christ and he receives the righteousness that God freely gives through him. We cannot attain heaven by our good works. The key issue, friends, is not what we can do for God, but what God has done for us in Jesus. It's quoted again a second time in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. Hebrews 10.38 quotes Habakkuk 2.4. But this time, instead of the emphasis being the righteous shall live by faith, it's the righteous shall live by faith. It's an emphasis on how we live. The author of Hebrews, in quoting this verse in chapter 10, is setting the scene for that famous chapter in Hebrews chapter 11 that we call Faith's Hall of Fame. And there we find listed examples of those who live by faith. The point of the author of Hebrews is that faith is both believing God, but also acting upon that belief. And so he tells us things like Cain believed God, and so he offered a better sacrifice than Abel did. He tells us Enoch believed God and pleased God by his long faithful life. Noah believed God and built an ark. Abraham believed God and left his home to go to a place that God would show him. In every one of those examples in Hebrews 11, it shows how faith expresses itself in what the believer does. Now, occasionally you might have opportunity to ask someone, do you believe in God? And most people, all the surveys show, 85, 90% of people believe in God. And so most people will say, of course I do. But belief is more than an intellectual assent to the notion that there's a creator. In salvation, faith means trusting the Lord Jesus as the one who died in our place and so turning from sin to follow him. 
You see, friends, faith is always expressed by our actions. The righteous shall live by faith. And then there's a third time in your New Testament that Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted. It's in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11. And again, with a different emphasis. This time, the righteous shall live by faith. In the book of Galatians, that quote is used to point out that righteousness does not just begin with faith and then operate later by some other principle. It's not that we live life and faith is something nice to draw on from time to time. No, indeed, faith must be the continuous operative principle in our lives. After we come to Christ in faith, we do not then strive to obtain the grace of God by what we do, But hear this, we're faithful to him out of gratitude for what he's done. That's why the songwriters Keith Getty and Stuart Townend were right. When in their song, Holy Spirit, they wrote this. Holy Spirit, come abide within. May your joy be seen in all I do. Love enough to cover every sin in each thought and deed and attitude. Kindness to the greatest and the least. Gentleness that sows the path of peace. Now hear this. Turn my strivings into works of grace. Breath of God, show Christ in all I do. Turn my strivings, turn my work into works of grace. That I'm living out by faith and giving credit to you in all I do. Friends, one word that's used in the Bible to describe Christians is believers. The Greek words for believe and faith in the New Testament come from the same word. So believers are those who have faith in God, those who believe God. The root difference between Christians and non-Christians that give rise to all the other differences between us, hear this, is who or what we believe. Do you believe God's word in your life, even though you don't understand what he's doing? When we sin, it's always because in that moment we fail to believe. Sin is always, in the moment, a failure of belief. We fail to believe that God is good, and so we'll pursue something that we think is better. We fail to believe that God is faithful, so we won't wait for him to work. We take matters into our own hands and sinfully work things out the way we think they should be. Patience is a consequence of believing, especially believing God for what we don't see happening. But God's at work, and we believe that, and we trust that. You see, when I mentioned at the beginning of today's sermon, the boss and the coach and the conductor. We need to remember, friends, that God is the one who has allowed that boss to be there. (laughs) Did you know that? So that idiot boss you have. He's God's idiot boss. God's the one who gave you that coach. God's the one who gave you that leader. They're fallible, to be sure, and sinful and prone to mistakes, But the God who placed them in your life is not. And he is faithful 
to work in your life and accomplish his purpose in your life. And the question is, do you believe that? Are you a believer? That same Getty Townend song asks the Lord to cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I cannot see. Do you believe? The just, the righteous will live by faith, by what we believe. Here's your take home truth. God has told us what we need to know. And he calls us to believe and to act upon what he has said. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you profoundly for meeting with us, allowing us to gather together, allowing us to have this word that you have preserved through the centuries. You've used your servants to preserve it. You, in your providence, have used secondary means in order to have it copied and preserved for us. And now we have it and now we can read it. And it's made plain to us. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to proclaim it and to teach it. Ah, but Lord, you have given it to us so that we see you there and seeing you there. We delight in you and delighting in you. We want to please you. We want to obey you. And so, Lord, help us to participate with you in the purpose for which you have given us this word. Help us to not be hearers only, but to be doers of your word. Help us, Lord, to live up to the name that we claim, that we are yours, that we are believers, that we are of the faith. And so help us to show that, that we believe that this God who is depicted in this word that you have given us is alive and active. And in the circumstances of our lives this week, even today, may we show that we believe you that we trust you even for what we cannot see. We thank you for showing yourself to be faithful, that, that past performance on your part is indeed a predictor of future results. Because we have seen you work in history, we've seen you work in our lives, we, Lord, can trust you fully for the future. Help us to do that and so honor you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.